welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Frank Zappa. Part 2. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. This fucking band is starving. And we've been starving for three years. I realize it takes a long time, but goddamn, does it take another five, ten years from now? There are some months when you're not going to work as much as other months. There are some months when you're going to make a lot of money. And if you average it out, you do make more than $200 a month. Expenses are sure high, too. If we'd all been living in California, it would have been different. If we'd all been living in California, you wouldn't work at all. Uh, that's true. Welcome to Frank's Montana, Part 2. Again, I'm the host, Dennis Bandiro. If you could tell from the intro, besides a couple of classics from the records I had to skip the first time around, we'll probably get into more uh, controversies and other elements of Frank's life. But of course, this time around, we will still focus mainly on the music. We left off with 1974's Roxy and Elsewhere and the spectacular band of that era. 1975 saw the same band return except for Ralph Humphreys with One Size Fits All, Another Must Have, 
I'm going to go with a full-length piece from this one, The Majestic Inca Roads, inspired by Eric Von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods. Frank would be thrilled, no doubt, and all this still exists as Ancient Aliens.
the head go bump. Somewhere around the dead of the head go bump. Somewhere around the dead. The Indians first on the bell, carve up the Another great performance from this band, Ruth Underwood on percussion, who said that uh, after her time with Frank, she pretty much put away her percussion uh, xylophone vibes because music pretty much bored her after that. Chester Thompson on drums, who went on to do many things, but primarily known for playing with Genesis from the 70s on out when Phil Collins took over as lead vocals. Based primarily on his resume with Frank, Phil used to like to recreate the double drum solo from Roxy and Elsewhere. Tom Fowler on bass, who played with Ray Charles after this for about 20 years. 
and the very talented George Duke on keyboards and vocals, who became nothing less than a jazz icon. Frank's excellent solo is actually live and cut into the studio performance. It would take musicians of this caliber to make such a transition that seamless. Next, Frank took a hard turn and invited his old friend, Captain Beefheart, along for a tour. Hang on.
let me tell you, oh Deborah, fire out and neither can Deborah. Take me with you. Don't you want any of these? You're going to have to come up with your own analysis of that. I have no idea. Although I think I did know Shithouse Charlie in third grade. The bizarre vocals and lyrics are one Captain Beefheart, who was actually a high school friend of Frank Zappa's back in California. They had a love-hate relationship over the years, with Frank producing his bizarre record, Trout Mask Replica, them having a falling out, slagging each other in the press, reuniting for this 1975 tour, then going back to slagging each other in the press. This album, Bongo Fury, also introduces dynamic new drummer Terry Bozio, who would come to define the band over the next several years. from 1976's Zoot Allures. If you're going to listen to Frank, you're going to have to get used to a lot of guitar solos. But if you noticed, Frank doesn't play a lot of licks. He approaches guitar solos more as real-time composition, which is in fact what he stated. This is not unlike the improvised approach of Dwayne Allman or, at his best, Jerry Garcia. Okay, I promised we would do something besides the music, and uh, I'm not really sure how to get into this. I've recorded this like seven times already. So here goes. Around 1975-1976, my father, who, like a lot of parents of that age, hated Kiss and all that kind of stuff that I was into at the time, and he says to me, you know that freak Alice Cooper? So he has one of these rock concerts, and... He takes a shit on the stage and they were having this gross out contest and this other freak named Frank Zappa steps up on the stage and says oh yeah I can do better than that and you know what he does then and of course I had no idea where this was going he got down there and he ate it this myth was so prevalent Frank decided to address it in his 1990 book the real Frank Zappa book which is a very hilarious read quote For the record, folks, I never took a shit on stage, and the closest I ever came to eating shit anywhere was at a Holiday Inn buffet in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1973. 
the late 70s, Frank went to war again with a Goliath, this time Warner Brothers Records. He delivered what we would call a box set. The label balked at four records being released at the same time. Frank responded by going to a local radio station, encouraging people to set up their tape decks, and then played the record on the air for people to tape. Warner Brothers responded by releasing the four records as a double album and two single albums with kinda crappy album cover and uh, no credits, which is uh, unheard of for a Frank Zappa record. By the time he's through this contractual mess, we're into 1979, and we have yet another peak for Frank Zappa, a third or fourth one by my reckoning. We now get to 1979's Shikira Booty with an entirely new band. So you get that this was a noisier, more hard-rocking group, but it's odd because by this time, Frank is almost 40 years old, and here he is going full-on rock star mode. Assisting in this effort is a much younger band, 
consisting of Terry Bozio, uh, Patrick O'Hearn on bass, Adrian Ballou on vocals and guitar, who was a slacker and later on just went on to play with David Bowie, The Talking Heads, and King Crimson, and another lovable oddball, keyboardist and vocalist Tommy Mars. Bolstering my argument of a third or fourth peak, he's been in the business for now 13 years and has the biggest selling record of his entire career, and almost cracks the top 40 with a single, Dancing Fool. dancing that's why i got this song one of my legs is shorter than the other and both of my feet's too long of course now right along with them i got no natural rhythm but i go dancing every night hoping one day i might get it right i'm a dancing Looking for Mr. Goodbar, here he is. 
Wait a minute, I've got it. You're an Italian. Huh? You're Jewish? Oh, love your nails. You must be a Libra. Your place or mine. <laughs> yes. Looking back at it now, another oddity with this band is the way Terry Bozio came into the outfit as a wide-eyed young school musician that I think had been playing in a big band before this, probably not playing a lot of rock and roll. And he spits out the other side of the Zappa universe as a full-fledged makeup rock star in the band Missing Persons with other Zappa veterans, Patrick O'Hearn and Warren Cucurullo, and his wife, Dale, who tended to sport fish bowls and other objects over her breasts in the live performance.
City of Tiny Lights, absolutely badass performance from Bozio on drums and a great vocal from Adrian. The subject matter being quaaludes, which somehow or another, uh, just the last three or four years, have came back into the news after disappearing since I guess I was in high school. And I guess that would be a nice segue into another non-musical element I promised, drugs. It's true Frank had a great disdain for drugs and alcohol, and it is also true that you are not allowed to abide in such things while in his band. Now imagine being a complete teetotaler and be in the music business, the rock music business of all things, throughout the 60s, the 70s, and 80s. His edict against drugs and alcohol in his band was primarily a legal concern, and a performance concern. Uh, Frank uh, really had a great respect for his fans and never wanted to let them down in a performance. This band is featured in a great movie called Baby Snakes that you can get pretty cheap online now. You have to skip around through a bunch of other stuff, but luckily with DVDs you go straight to the performances and they are incredible.
I'm not really qualified enough to comment on his orchestral compositions, except that number one, it's pretty incredible that they exist. Frank was not a schooled musician. He did have some high school and a community college level compositional courses, but uh, at the end of the day, he says that he taught himself arrangement, transcription, conducting on his own from visits to the library. My second point is an observation. Frank's orchestral compositions were sometimes beautiful, like uh, Strictly Genteel, which you just heard, sometimes quite strange, as you would imagine. But what strikes me is that they were instantly recognizable. I'm imagining because he was using some of the same unique harmony ideas and syncopation that he did in his jazz and rock and other genres he worked in. Okay, I'm seeing the finish line for part two here, uh, off in the distance. And before we get there, I think I'd better bring up the gorilla in the corner that uh, I've been avoiding up to this point, only because it was so easy to find two hours of my favorites that don't contain the gorilla. <laughs> and I am speaking, of course, of some of Frank's lyrical content. Some would estimate, like myself, that this gorilla weighs about 100 pounds. Others would put him at uh, 1,200 pounds, and others would put him at, you know, the mass of Jupiter. Frank's music could contain some sharp-edged satire and sarcasm that some could find and did offensive, especially if you were the target of said sarcasm. Along with sarcasm, a lot of really graphic sexual imagery would show up in some of his lyrics. Why Frank did this has been the subject of a lot of speculation. If you ask him, he would sometimes derisively say, that's what I felt like writing, and uh, that's human behavior, and it needs to be celebrated. One writer argued that it was a result of Frank's running with the law when he was much, much younger. Frank was set up in no uncertain terms by a vice squad in a small California town and tricked into producing what was probably the lamest pornography of all time, an audio tape of him and a girl trying not to giggle as they bounced up and down on a springed mattress and fake sex noises. The writer's theory is that uh, Frank was so angry about this injustice that he carried this forward for the rest of his life, and he was saying, you're, you're going to trick me into this? Okay, well, here's sex in your face forever. Another element is maybe Frank just liked sex a lot, and there's a lot of evidence of that also. And then there's the uh, concept that uh, Frank very much was the uh, child of the 60s and embraced the sexual revolution and often talked about that, uh, how that would free people's minds. I don't know how well that worked out. It looks like to me at this point in uh, November 2018 that the, uh, the sexual revolution has crashed with no survivors. Anyway, the catalog is so massive that it's easy to just ignore those if you would like or... Just listen to the ones you think are entertaining. Welcome to the first church of a point apology. The one zone is for loading and unloading only. Jupiter Vine. It's just the token of my extreme. Don't you Jupiter Vine. It's just the token. Never try to look 
And just like that, we're at Joe's Garage, also released in 1979, a sometimes pointed, sometimes rambling story told over six album sides. The band again has changed radically. Terry Bozio is now gone and replaced by somewhat inhuman drummer Vinnie Caliuta. This record also introduces Ike Willis, a tremendous vocalist and guitar player, who I think may have been the only true creative partner in Frank Zappa's musical history. The first song should strike a note with anyone who's ever played in a garage band. wasn't very large there was just enough room to cram the drums in the corner over by the dodge it was a 54 with a mashed up door and a cheesy little lamp with a sign on the front said fender champ and a second hand guitar it was a stratocaster with a whammy bar we could jam and joe's garage his mama was screaming and his dad was mad We was playing the same old song in the afternoon And sometimes we would play it all night long It was all we knew and easy to So we wouldn't get it wrong All we did was bend the string like Hey, down in Joe's garage We didn't have no dope for
singing like I saw They got up and danced and made a lot of noise And it wasn't for very long A guy from a company we can't name Said we ought to take his pen And sign on the line for a real good time But he didn't tell us when These good times would be something That was really happening So the band broke up And it looks like We will never play again Guess you only get one chance in life To play a song that goes like Frank narrates the story in a bizarre robotic voice, and some of the songs tend to go on and on a little bit, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, will be something truly transcendent. I like this vocal by Ike on Lucille Has Messed My Mind Up. Still 
Funny story here. I once met Ike at a small club when he was playing with a tribute band called Project Object. How you doing, Andre? It was a great performance that night, and I got excited and decided that I needed Ike's autograph. Uh, I've never asked for anybody's autograph in my life, so I ran out to my car and grabbed only thing I had, which was my Joe's Garage CD and a ballpoint pen. I handed all this to Ike, and he kind of raised his eyebrow and looked at me and said, You don't really do this often, do you? I guess the pros bring t-shirts and albums and sharpies, and here I was handing him this CD cover and a ballpoint pen with floor mat fuzz all over it. Anyway, Ike is a super nice guy. Here's another great Ike vocal and a fantastic arrangement that I guess really catches my ear because it's uh, simplistic enough that I can totally understand what's going on. Cause my balls feel like a pair of 
Joe's Garage has all kinds of interesting moments musically and lyrically, but uh, it also contains two of his most powerful musical statements uh, for different reasons. The first one is Packard Goose, which is is a pretty vicious attack on rock riders, but uh, Frank didn't play defense too much. He was almost always on the offense. Maybe you thought I was the pack of goose Or the Ronald McDonald of the new boy at Scrooge Well, fuck all them people, I don't need no excuse for being what I am Do you hear me then? All them rock and roll writers is the worst kind of sleaze Selling punk like some new kind of English disease Is that the wave of the future? Oh, spare me, please Oh, no, you got to go Who do you write for? I want to know I believe you is the government's home So they might understand They can all kiss my ass But because it's so grand They best just stay away Now hey, hey, hey Hey, Joe, who did you blow? Oh, push the button, boy And you went to the show Better suck a little harder Or the shackles won't blow Well, information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is not truth. Truth is not beauty. Beauty is not love. Love is not music. Music is the best. Wisdom is the domain of the whiz which is extinct. Beauty is a French phonetic corruption of a short cloth neck ornament. 
That's Dale Bozio with the spoken interlude in the middle. Another interesting thing is the guitar solos on this record and the last record also was an idea Frank came up with where they were live performances from completely different songs and he would paste them in the studio and have the rhythm section in the band react to the solo from a different song. As a guitarist, I could relate to that. Uh, when you improvise, sometimes magical things happen that are once in a lifetime, and it seems like he was shooting to have a whole solo of magical things. Frank continued to release records and tour well into the 80s, but personally it never grabbed me like uh, the stuff I presented in the last two podcasts. But my brother and the Heffler loved that stuff, so there you go. Before we wrap it up, I once again want to thank Donnie and Clay for inviting me onto the podcast. It has been a blast. We'll go out with one of Frank's most memorable songs. Uh, Ironic, because it's probably one of his simplest. This is the Central Scrutinizer. Joe has just worked himself into an imaginary frenzy during the fade-out of his imaginary song. He begins to feel depressed now. He knows the end is near. He has realized at last that imaginary guitar notes and imaginary vocals exist only in the imagination of the imaginer. And ultimately, who gives a fuck anyway?
This podcast has been produced by Dennis Bandiro. Good night, Austin, Texas, wherever you are.